This is Telehealth Unmuted, a podcast developed by Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. HTRC is one of 14 federally designated telehealth resource centers in the country, serving the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We know there's a huge need for up-to-date telehealth-related information, from billing and reimbursement to psychology and online therapy. So we're bringing subject matter experts and their insights right to you. I'm your host, Kara Lawler, Director of Health Communication Research Center, and this is Telehealth Unmuted. Welcome to the show. Really excited for this conversation today. Jumping right in, I want to go ahead and have my guests introduce themselves because it's not very often that I have two people um, in an interview at the same time. So um, I guess, Dr. Mosier, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first and give our audience just your current position, what you're up to. Sure. Be glad to. And thanks, Kara. I'm Dr. Bob Mosier, I'm a family physician and serve as the Dean of the KU School of Medicine Salina branch and also serve as a medical director for the uh, Care Collaborative. I'm Jody Schmidt, Executive Director of the Care Collaborative, uh, former hospital administrator. Awesome. We are so lucky to have them with us today, and um, we'll be really touching on a couple of different programs that they were instrumental in creating, developing, and executing. But before we get into that, I always like to ask the same question every time, and it is, how did you get here? What has been your career journey, even at just like the 500-foot view? So would either of y'all, who wants to give that answer first and giving us a little bit of your career background? Well, I'll, uh, I'll try to start and make it sound simple. Um, so I, I grew up in uh, very rural uh, Kansas, the smallest county in Kansas, and then uh, left and uh, attended KU and went through pharmacy school then medical school, and then did my residency in family medicine in Salina. And uh, to pay back my medical student loans, I went back home uh, to practice in Tribune. And a couple of years later, I was the only physician in Tribune, and then the only physician between Tribune and and, uh, Goodland. And uh, so I spent the first couple of years recruiting uh, and was able to eventually build up with some great partners of a group of five family physicians and three uh, mid-levels. And we were covering basically three counties along the Colorado border. So with the oldest uh, daughter gone and the youngest one graduating high school, I thought this was a great opportunity to step out and get into academic medicine. So I started down that path, but ended up uh, being appointed as the secretary uh, of the Kansas Department of Health and Environment and served there uh, and as state health officer for four years. The last of that was being asked to come talk to a group called the Kansas Heart and Stroke Collaborative about population health and a report that came out in Kansas uh, talked about the burden of cardiovascular disease in Kansas. And that showed that uh, we had a high mortality rate in rural Kansas for heart attack and stroke, a higher readmission rate. And uh, at that time, uh, I didn't know that they were going to be looking for an executive director, uh, you know, to help roll this project out. And a month later, I was interviewing for that and was fortunate enough to get to join Jody in, in helping roll that project out. So um, I did that for about five years and then the opportunity to come back and, and give back a little bit in uh, medical education to teaching students um, in a rural setting like Salina, uh, the dean's position opened and Jody and, and the 
folks at the University of Kansas Health System were nice enough to let me stay engaged with Care Collaborative, and so I, I took the opportunity to come here as dean and still work with the Care Collaborative. Awesome. Thank you so much for um, giving us that comprehensive overview. And I know it's always hard to kind of summarize <laughs> like your whole career journey, but I think you did such a good job. Um, Jody, do you want to go ahead and give your career background as well? I'd be happy to. I didn't intend to have a career in healthcare, to be completely honest. In fact, um, when I was young, my mother and I lived above the physician's office where she worked back in the days when you had physician's offices in big old homes. And then she served as director of nursing at a hospital. So I saw much too much when I was young to think that I would ever be a clinician. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in communications and marketing. I was hired by the local hospital when they came to realize that communications was important to their work in the late 80s, back in 1987. And uh, for several years, really enjoyed that work. Had a CEO who told me I had a bad habit of not just telling him how to communicate something, but what to do. And that nine times out of 10, I was right. And he recommended I go back and get a master's degree in healthcare administration, which I did and started that journey. Um, at that time, um, we were just launching the original Each Peach program, which was a demonstration precursor to critical access hospitals. So I had the opportunity to be part of the very first um, state survey here in Kansas and grew that to a network of 23 rural hospitals, uh, then accepted a position as a 109-bed rural hospital CEO there. I actually brought a physician from the University of Kansas down to help us address um, sepsis improvement, something that we'd identified in our own hospital, and saw that when we could bring an academic researcher down, share the latest best practice with all our medical staff and our support staff, and share their, their protocols with us, and we weren't starting from scratch, we were able to change care in three weeks. And so when this opportunity for the Heart and Stroke Collaborative came along, I was very excited to, to join Dr. Mosher and the team because I'd been on the receiving end of that type of program and knew the impact it could have. Thank you so much. And I didn't know you had a background in marketing. That is so cool. So do I. And I also didn't expect to be in healthcare in any capacity. And look, look where we are now. So <laughs> I, I think that's a fun uh, tie-in. And I absolutely think communication is paramount to the work that we do in healthcare and public health and needs to be recognized as such. So um, awesome. So the golden question now, of course, now that we've kind of laid that foundation is what we'll be talking about today, which is the, the care collaborative in all of its forms and um, that y'all have been involved in. So starting right off the bat, my first question is, can you tell us about Kansas Heart and Stroke Collaborative, how it came to be and really just kind of the journey and, and maybe sub programs that came from it? Well, I'll, I'll start and let uh, Jody fill in the blanks. But um, yeah, it, it began as a $12.4 million CMS Innovation Award to the University of Kansas Health System. And the intent was is to address those uh, rural health disparities around heart attack and stroke. And uh, the partners were 11 uh, critical access hospitals in northwest Kansas and uh, Hayes Med, a tertiary rural hospital. Um, and so we uh, started with 13 counties in Northwest Kansas, and we used our subject matter experts at KU and, and Hayes Med to help develop the protocols off of evidence-based guidelines. 
and then went out to each of the facilities so that we could train, as Jody pointed out, you know, all of the providers, all the support staff at one time so they would understand, you know, how the protocols were developed, but also working with them to adapt the protocols to the local realities uh, so they made sense. Uh, and all of our sites were able to uh, go through the education, uh, look in and adapt and, and uh, modify and then accept all the protocols by their medical staff and actually start using them um, by that first quarter in 2015. And so uh, we were collecting data to look at how they were doing on the time measures, like you know, time to getting the clot busting drug on board for a heart attack, uh, same thing for stroke and getting them in the door and out the door onto the next higher level of care. Um, and so we saw within the first quarter significant improvement in those time measures, um, you know, which was kind of Jody's experience of what she ex uh, noted down in Labette was sepsis. And so um, the CMS, you know, uh, said, wow, you guys are, you know, moving quite along on your operational plan. So why don't you go ahead and look at expanding? And we had one of our rural providers who said, you know, hey, there's another time critical diagnosis we see plenty of uh, uh, we need to address and that's sepsis. Uh, so the same researcher uh, clinician, Dr. Steve Simpson, who Jody had worked with in Labette was still working on this uh, Stop Sepsis campaign in Kansas. So we basically took over his didactic portion of that adjusted some of the protocols to the rural realities and started training across our rapidly increasing number of members uh, because we went from those 13 counties to the next thing we knew we were at 36 and then 54 and it's continued to grow. And the good news is, is we've had nobody who started with us at the very beginning all the way through where we're at now that's dropped out of this uh, collaborative effort. I, I, they obviously see value in it. So the other things that we implemented with this model was uh, addressing the hospital readmission rates. Uh, so we were doing transitional care management with a couple of uh, APRNs in that large geographic area, taking care of uh, doing uh, follow-up visits as soon as patients returned home. And then we would do chronic care management, a, a new, uh, another new billable service from CMS um, so that these patients who had these chronic conditions, we could continue to help with uh, coordinating their care between specialists and doing medication reconciliation, patient education. But what we wanted to make sure of is what else could we do to support our rural providers so that they could implement their protocol, manage the patient, but not be distracted by having to not only manage the patient, but make arrangements for transportation, getting in touch with a consulting and receiving hospital. So we worked with uh, Avera out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota at that time uh, to implement their e-emergency care uh, subscription model in all of those uh, participating hospitals. Um, and that, that turned out to be a really great supporting uh, force uh, because the providers definitely noted that they could focus on the patient and not have to be coming in and out the, the, the room to, to be on the phone to make arrangements for transportation and whatnot. So, um, then finally, you know, we saw turnover of medical staff and nursing staff and whatnot. And so they were having trouble keeping the new folks kind of up to speed on the protocols. So we implemented kind of a project echo like uh, process of taking a case from one of those rural facilities and doing a case study, a case review as a way of uh, continuing education to keep everybody abreast of the protocols and best practices some you know how some others may have addressed some of the barriers that they saw 
And then finally, uh, I don't want to forget that, you know, the feedback that we got from our folks in the front line, uh, you know, it was taking like 36 minutes for the patient uh, from hitting the ER, getting an EKG and having it interpreted. And so that had a lot to do with the way that rural hospitals operate. They don't have to have physicians on call in-house. They can take call at home, but they have to be available to come in within 30 minutes. And so one of the facilities said, well, you know, could we take a picture, you know, of the EKG and send it to the provider on call? And they could tell us whether that was an acute MI or not. And if it was an acute MI, we could start our protocol. And so we uh, put iPads in all of the ERs and helped them, you know, learn how to take a picture without, you know, uh, with protecting the patient information so that that would be uh, uh, HIPAA compliant. And that really helped speed up the time to getting these uh, time measures uh, completed. So we used a variety of telemedicine, telehealth uh, to kind of support the work of, of this, uh, maybe not in the normal sense of telemedicine that people think of. Jody, did I miss anything? No, I think you covered it all. As you said, we, we bridged the distances. Right now we have 82 members across two thirds of the state. So we do use uh, telehealth connectivity to allow us to be able to stay connected with uh, members across that sort of a, a geography. You know, when we do our boot camps, our secret sauces, we do bring the education and training directly to them so that we get the vast majority of providers all on the same page. We know traditional continuing ed, one or two people go away, they hear the information, they come back home, no one else heard it, no one else saw the research. And so it's a bit of a salmon swimming upstream to try and get everybody else to, uh, to really um, get on board with that change. And some studies have said less than 10%, you know, less than 10% of organizations see change in that model. We reversed that and saw more than 90% of our organizations demonstrate change in that way, but we couldn't maintain that boots on the ground in two thirds of the state of Kansas. So we've really leveraged telehealth connectivity to um, allow us to continue to be successful. Great explanation, and, and I really appreciate the level of detail. I already have so many follow-up questions because you had really good information. I think one of the things that we're very fascinated by, especially at Heartland Health Resource Center, um, seeing as we do serve rural populations, are the unique needs of rural populations. Um, I know that a big part of the CARE Collaborative is serving patients in rural populations. So I'm curious... Um, and, and I want to ask, what are the specific issues that you that, that you notice patients face that are maybe specific to rural um, when compared to kind of our urban counterparts? Well, certainly distance is a barrier, not just for our providers, but also for patients um, to get into their local um, community uh, health center for services. So we know that that distance is, is certainly a barrier. Um, and certainly we've seen those case studies within um, our, our STEMI research, for example, of that, that rancher who's going to finish putting the cattle away and six hours later reports to the hospital. The transportation needs then when a patient does need to get to that next highest level of care, certainly a barrier. Access to specialty and subspecialty care, always a barrier. Um, uh, there's been tele-oncology outreach in Western Kansas for 30 years because that was a, a dramatic need that was so important out in the Western part of the state. Um, and then we just 
um, have shortages like all providers do that are just more acute. Behavioral health providers are in, in significant shortage uh, all across the country, but we see that even more um, consistently out in Western Kansas. Um, currently, we're working on some uh, diabetes work and the access to endocrinology. One community told me they hadn't had access for a decade, so we're working on establishing endocrinology consultation via telehealth right now in that region. Um, so that, that type of of um, gap that we're experiencing all around the country is just magnified um, when we talk about our rural populations. What have I missed, Dr. Mosher? Not much, Jody. I think uh, you know, I wanted to highlight one of the other interesting um, characteristics around rural patients and, and what we saw with the heart and stroke as we began collecting our data and as we followed it up over time. And this isn't necessarily unique to rural Kansas. It's, it is kind of a rural phenomenon, but we have probably over 80% of our heart attack victims showing up by private car. Um, and about 60% of our stroke patients arrive by private car to the small hospital. Um, and I know there are still significant numbers even in the urban settings, but in the rural, you know, when you do focus groups to kind of explore a little bit of that, well, it's interesting. You know, one is they're pretty stoic and private individuals. They don't want the neighbors to know something's going on. So if they call 911, they'll have the sheriff and the ambulance and a bunch of hoopla and they, they don't want to make a big deal out of it. Like Jody said, they'd rather finish working cattle and then come in. Um, but the other is often the distance. You know, they think that they can load up and, you know, drive themselves, unfortunately, or sometimes load up their friend and, and bring them into the hospital ED quicker than an ambulance could you know, arrive out in the scene. Even though they don't realize there are some interventions the local uh, ambulance crews could be doing uh, while they're getting transported and as well as alerting the system that they're coming in. Uh, so it, it was kind of fascinating uh, to see that kind of behavior. Uh, and then as I've been researching to present in a, another rural state, uh, looking at their data, it's very similar. So I don't think it's unique to Kansas, but it is a rural phenomenon that's uh, around the distance and around the kind of personalities that we, we deal with. And then from a post pandemic perspective, we've seen just an exacerbation of the workforce shortages. Um, we were always short of, of um, nurses, CNAs, CMAs, physicians, of course, um, advanced practice providers, you know, just the whole team, um, lab, um, phlebotomy, you know, all the way across, there were workforce shortages. And, and post-pandemic, we're seeing that be really exacerbated. One of the primary care clinics we work with had one RN to support four physicians in their clinic, and they were really struggling to recruit. So we've definitely seen through that process, we, um, we provided all the support we could could as the best practice recommendations were changing regularly in the early days of the pandemic. We took all of our academic COVID protocols, Dr. Mosier and, and the nurses on our team made them fit a rural environment. We cranked those out as quickly as we could. And as much appreciation as we heard for that sort of support, we couldn't make up for just the reality of the shortages in, in people and, and having enough bodies to support the patients out in those areas. And we have seen that continue as we're you know, working our way out of the pandemic. I wanted to zoom out and I realized I, I probably should have asked this right after you all gave the full description of the collaborative, but um, what would be like an example of a consumer journey, so a patient journey in accessing the resources of the collaborative? Like what what is the typical um, timeline of, of hearing about it, using it, implementation, if that makes sense? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, hearing about it would have started with the local campaigns that we did on the importance of identifying the signs and symptoms of heart attack and stroke out in the community. So whether it was health fairs or doing events at the local high school basketball games, football games, however we could um, put the information in the hands of the patient to say, don't wait six hours and finish up the cattle, you know, get to your local emergency room. So that would be how people first heard about the Heart and Stroke Collaborative. Um, then if they identified those signs and symptoms and came to their local emergency room, they would have been treated under the protocols that we provide the facilities to make it easy to implement evidence-based practice. They're designed primarily as checklists so that those things that should be done for every patient, there's already a check in the box and it can lead the, the, the providers to those important clinical decisions. If uh, in, in the case of a STEMI, that EKG, as Dr. Moser said, would be taken by the tablet with HIPAA compliant software shot off to both the local primary care provider on their way into the ER, and then off to the specialist at the regional referral center so that they could make a determination upon the patient's transfer and so that the receiving facility could be ready for that patient. Um, they would provide the, uh, the treatment, um, whether as Dr. Moser said, clot-busting drugs, et cetera, at the local level, getting the EKG quickly, getting the CT for the stroke patient quickly, getting that interpretation within the guideline um, recommendations, administering the drug, watching for um, reactions, all of that are guided by the protocol. So the patient would have been treated under that protocol. And then, um, then there'd be the process of determining transport. And we identified that transport was a very real issue for us, that 50% of patients were being transported three or four times before they got to the definitive level of care that they needed. And so we partnered with a local group who developed a, a program called Mission Control that with about eight questions on, a, on a, an app, they're able to determine the best way. Does this patient need to go by ground or air? What's the next level of care that they need? What support do they need in the ground or uh, on ground or in air? And which is the local, local um, resource or the closest regional resource that can get to that patient in a timely way? And so that, that the determination on transportation would be done through that component of our program. Then the patient would arrive at their regional referral center. And Dr. Moser spent hours and hours working also with cardiologists and neurologists at the receiving facilities to make sure everybody was working from the same evidence-based protocols and practices. So anywhere across the continuum, the patient was still getting the highest quality care. And so then they would arrive at that regional facility and they would continue the care, again, as I said, under that same sort of protocol and best practice. When they returned home, the discharge planner at that tertiary care center would notify our team and we would reach out to the patient to see if we could connect them to one of our chronic care management health co coaches so that we could assist them in medication reconciliation, make sure their nutritional needs were being met, fall, met, fall risk screenings, um, really making sure that the patient had what they needed, but then also doing things like motivational interviewing so that we could understand how to keep them on track with their treatment plan, making sure that the left hand and right hand of the specialist seeing the patient in the local primary care practice, they all had the same information. So we've now done more than 80,000 chronic care management visits with our patients, and we've seen just phenomenal results. 
um, really truly phenomenal results in you know, working with those patients. And the vast majority of those patients have stayed with us some for four and five years in chronic care management because they're connecting with that nurse regularly and they have a resource to go to when they have concerns. Um, a patient who was struggling to be compliant with their diabetic medications, we learned that they were, couldn't afford uh, new glasses, so they couldn't see what they were doing. Able to connect them to those resources, connect them to local meal site or the Dole food boxes or transportation uh, if they needed it through local resources. It really has been um, a combination of uh, healthcare and social services all combined through one health coach that, there's, that is their partner through the journey. Most recently, we've added remote patient monitoring for our first 300 patients, so we can actually monitor what's going on with them between those visits. Our our use of the chronic care management model, um, you know, which is mostly you know requires 20 minutes of non-face-to-face phone contact with the patient, and to to go through the assessments and and help with care coordination. And as Jody mentioned, yeah, we found uh, you know. Uh, at the beginning, about 20% of patients coming back into the rural community didn't necessarily identify with a local provider. And some of that was because they had gone bare without insurance coverage. And so they just didn't really have regular you know, medical care. So the health coach and transitional care managers were able to get them tied back into the local community. So, you know, we think of telemedicine oftentimes with the fancy, you know, computers and Zoom and other platforms. And sometimes, you know, being able to do it by phone uh, which has always been, you know, a, a huge reluctance by third-party payers to cover that uh, as an expense. Uh, we've been able to demonstrate just how impactful it can be with, you know, at least a 20% year-to-year reduction in total cost of care of those who are getting chronic care management on a long-term basis versus those who have similar risk factors that aren't. And so um, the trouble is, is most of those health coaches were RNs when we began. We had a a few social workers, I think an exercise physiologist that we trained up to do that. Uh, but now with the shortage, you know, we'd like to look at, you know, helping to identify and train up others who can maybe take on that role uh, to continue the impact that, that we've been able to demonstrate today. And so to accomplish that, um, we've recently received a HRSA grant, workforce grant, and we'll be partnering with the Northwest Kansas Technical College to build on their CMA, their Certified Medical Assistance um, Curriculum, with some of the, the resources that we've developed for uh, training of our health coaches, and um, particularly around medication reconciliation and motivational interviewing, and um, really as Dr. Moser said, creating a new pipeline of healthcare workers that are trained to um, administer population health programming without taking away nurses or uh, from the local hospitals, without taking away CNAs from the local long-term care facilities, without you know stripping the local primary care clinics of their staff. So we're really excited about being able to recruit individuals in these rural communities who have an interest in a healthcare career and through that grant provide scholarships and, and um, uh, internships and, and really help them enter into this new type of a population health workforce. What a tremendous opportunity um, to be able to do that. And I I think uh, you touched on something that, um, I mean, I know to be true after being in the healthcare and public health space. And it is is that students or those that are early in their career need to have 
that exposure um, and through an internship or through, you know, um, an opportunity like you mentioned in order to see, you know, all the great work that's being done and the opportunities that are available to them and to use, you know, their existing skill sets, even if they extend outside of traditional medicine, right? Like marketing or, or PR or having those strong writing skills. So I'm, I'm really impressed by that. And um, as you were talking about the care collaborative, there's so many people involved. There's so much coordination. It's overwhelming to hear about it. I can't imagine being, you know, actively involved in the project itself. But I'm curious, Jody, as the executive director, how do you navigate that? How do you how do you lead effectively an organization that has so many different moving parts um, and pieces? I'm I'm just curious. Do you have Do you have any words of wisdom? Well, we. <laughs> Not necessarily words of wisdom, but we've uh, we've recruited a really solid team of program managers. And while Dr. Mosher and I have responsibility across all these programs, across um, we formed a formal patient safety organization for all of our clinical programs and a formal accountable care organization for our value-based participation in those programs. And we have teams that support both of those and program managers that support the various grants. And so while we have to be a bit of jack of all trades across that continuum, they have the ability to focus very, very specifically on their piece of the work. And uh, certainly we have staff meetings to just keep everybody um, informed about one another's work and any connectivities. Um, you know, we are a collaborative and we also work to collaborate with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment and the Kansas um, Healthcare Collaborative and the Hospital Association. So we also, where we can, look for opportunities to partner with others. I just had a call today with, with a, a new group of partners. Um, and I, I think our role, both Dr. Mosier's medical director and mine as executive director, is to just make sure that all the programs are moving forward and achieving their goals and that we have measurable impact so that we can say that in stroke care, you know, we were at less than 3% of, of patients receiving thrombolytics, and now we're above the national average in terms of stroke patients receiving thrombolytics, and that we can really see how our facilities are doing in the one hour, three hour, and six hour sepsis bundles or time to EKG. Um, those folks abstract the data, they review the reports, they stay on top of their piece of the world. And then our job is to, to look for new opportunities to um, address the gaps that are that the data indicate or that our members really bring to us, which is why we're doing things now like a diabetes program. I think that's um, really interesting and definitely allocating work is, is really important. So I'm glad that y'all have such a supportive staff because it's so important. I'm curious, so, I mean, y'all have touched on so many different success metrics, outcomes that have come out of this. Are there any that have been surprising that you weren't necessarily hoping to achieve that happened or um, maybe didn't even know to be measuring or looking out for that have come out of this collaborative? Well, you know, there's a, a lot of um, measures, I guess. You always worry about uh, both patient engagement, you know, and physician engagement. I think as Jody pointed out, you know, none of this success would have happened without the the great rural uh, providers and systems out there that are willing to you know tackle the work and and implement these protocols and and work with us to to do the work that uh, we've done. 
So, you know, the outcomes of, you know, what we see on uh, the care for the patients, um, you know, has definitely shown uh, better outcomes and better health status as a result of those protocols. So you hope going in, that's what you're going to see. To actually see it is very rewarding. Um, you know, but the other thing is, is uh, finding things that, uh, you know, we were probably aware of, but making sure we're listening to what the local health system, the local providers are telling us that they see as needs or uh, issues. And so as we move toward, you know, always thinking about what could we do to move our practices to be um, more prepared for value-based payment models uh, like the accountable care organizations. And so when we kind of decided, you know, because we were pushed by the administrators and some providers, you know, that, hey, we're, we're doing well, we ought to look at that Medicare shared savings program. So when we started going that route, I was a little worried because we hadn't really moved into the clinical setting, you know, to start working on quality improvements from the clinical side. And uh, we, we found a lot of things as we started in that work. But, uh, you know, what came to us back from the providers that, you know, we could help address because we were fortunate to find a grant at the right time uh, was developing uh, something to address the challenges with patients who needed behavioral health support. And and our, our health coaches saw that as well. I mean, it's not unusual, you know, post-MI or post-stroke for patients to kind of go through, you know, depression, some anxiety, you know, is this going to happen again or whatnot? But the challenges with our system was, you know, high turnover rates of uh, counselors, behavioralists uh, in the area mental health centers and the patients having to travel, the stigma associated with, you know, being at, at a center that they view as you know, for someone who's really, you know, has serious mental illness. So the telebehavioral health network uh, was something we set up with uh, 11 of our ACO members who really recognized the challenges. And, and one of the sites I, that was most fascinating to me was a site that actually has one of our state hospitals in their county. And yet they're terribly underserved from a mental health standpoint. Um, and so, you know, you thought, well, that's odd. You, you would think they would have plenty of providers. Well, they probably do, but they're tied up with the, you know, state institution, not, not at the community level. So we were able to help implement, you know, a telebehavioral health network with the mind of what could, how could we set this up so that it's sustainable, uh, but delivers the care and the service that is needed at the local level. So patients could go into their local provider where they normally get medical care and get behavioral health services. And um, but what could we do to not overwhelm the local practice uh, by having another provider coming, you know, into their practice, another patient that the nurse had to get checked in? So Jody can probably tell more about the details of how we set up that model, but um, that was a true use of you know telehealth in delivering a, a, an absolutely critical element of care in rural settings that I think uh, even rural providers sometimes fail to rec recognize that. You know, they're delivering probably behavioral health services uh, to 80% of the patients they're taking care of. They may not necessarily recognize it as such, but um, for those who do and they address it, I, I think they typically see better outcomes and better, you know, patient satisfaction scores. But it, it was a, a lot of fun, a lot of work to get that set up. And, and that's... Uh, that's been, I think, very rewarding to see the outcomes on that. What Dr. Mosher was referring to is we um, created a couple of uh, new positions, coordinator positions to support the telebehavioral health network with the idea that we needed to make it easier for the primary care provider, but also for the specialist. If we really wanted the specialist to stay engaged in telehealth, it had to be as simple and straightforward as possible. And our members use 17 different EHRs. 
but the psychiatrists on that end, the counselors on that end, were all using a single EHR. So we trained our folks to actually register and schedule patients in the psychiatrist's EHR. So when they saw the patient, it was built right into their workflows and very easy. And then to make it easier on the rural site, um, those coordinators would travel out for um, scheduled days where we could block schedule patients so that, again, they could continue to see their primary care patients and we weren't pulling away resources they really didn't have. Then during the pandemic, when we had the flexibility to see the patients from home, those coordinators established the Zoom connections, connected the patient to Zoom so they were ready for the provider, um, did the follow-up around medications, really just um, made certain that everything was as smooth and seamless as possible. And I think that was a lesson learned from us in that perspective. It's one thing to have primary care folks on one end and specialists on the other, but they were the glue that really held it all together. And uh, was, we were so pleased to see that that works. And we've continued to support that coordinator role even after the grant has ended because it was so important from an accountable care organization standpoint to really make certain that we continue to see these behavioral health patients. So we're able to build that important role right into our ongoing uh, support. Um, in terms of you know, surprises, because I'd been at Labette Health and had seen the value of this kind of a model, I expected clinical outcomes. I'm going to be honest, I really truly did. I expected to see improvement because we as an individual hospital had. Um, what I didn't expect is when we moved into this world of Medicare shared savings, I wasn't certain that we as a group of rural providers who had to really bring multiple clinics together to, just to get 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries could really come together and pull 35,000 Medicare beneficiaries and make enough change to, to drive shared savings. But we saw shared savings in our very first year, and uh, which was a surprise to me, um, and allowed us to share savings back with our members. And then in 2020, we saw a $4.3 million shared savings, which we were able to share back with our rural members at a time when rural facilities are, you know, stretched financially. And so I, you know, I, We'll be honest, I, I wasn't certain that given the challenges of distance and resources, et cetera, that we would be able to hold our own against primarily urban accountable care organizations. And I'm pleased to say that actually only about less than 20% of ACOs have shared savings in their first year, and we were one of them. So always excited when we can say that, that rural can lead. And I think in, in that arena, we did find that we could. Love that. I'm team rural, so it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have to admit, I stole that from Alan Morgan, the the I was uh, like, I love that. National Res, uh, Rural Health Association. I worked with him for several years as a volunteer on their board, and so I, that is not my line; that is his. <laughs> okay, all credit, all credit to them. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was just interviewing somebody last week for a different podcast episode and um she said that her heart was rural or like rural has her heart and i also love that so i'm gonna keep all of these lines for national rural health week in november um so perfect perfect timing to be <laughs> it's always a perfect time to be talking about rural health in my opinion but especially right now with the upcoming um public health 
uh, week. So I always like to reserve time at the end to ask, is there anything that I didn't touch on that either of you wanted to mention as it relates either to your collaborative or to any other programs that you're working on or are fascinated by? I mean, I just kind of want to give you the floor. You know, um, Dr. Mosier brought to our team this concept of motivational interviewing, and it was something that I was not familiar with and, and really had to dig into. I have been surprised at how important that has been to the ongoing success of these patients with whom we have this longitudinal relationship. The patient who stayed with his physical therapy treatment plan because his goal was to get back on his Harley one more time and, and did. Or recently, a patient in remote monitoring, we do some chair-based exercises and things with them. And she said, I can now get in and out of the church pew on my own. And that was what motivated her to really stay. You know, it's great to see improvements in blood pressure and improvements in A1C and those sorts of things. But to hear the patient say with pride, I can now do this. Or they all have my cell number. And so they'll text me just um, a little anecdote about how pleased they are, how much they appreciate the program, et cetera, and give examples. I did not realize the power of that connecting with something that's personal to them, because, you know, we do tend to talk about what's good for your health. Um, and sometimes that goes right over the head. But when we can talk about them wanting to you know, be at their granddaughter's wedding or get back out into the garden or fish again, et cetera, that has been something that has really impressed me in terms of the impact it has on improving patients' outcomes. Yeah, the only thing I you know, would add is you know, we've done so much great work and um, we've, we've generated a few you know, reports and whatnot. Um, but yeah, my heart is rural as well. And, and uh, even being at the medical school level, you know, training uh, young physicians, you know, unfortunately, they don't really get a, a good education on uh, the healthcare systems and how it works. And so um, you, you know, we're creating a Kansas Center for Rural Health here on the Salina campus with an opportunity for our students to do some scholarly activity. And the Care Collaborative is generating a ton of data, a ton of opportunities, I think, for engagement of our students at different levels, which I hope will lead to kind of a longitudinal uh, relationship with some of our rural practices where, who knows, eventually they may you know, be back out there uh, because they'll have uh, at an early stage of their education an understanding of how the systems work out there. And yeah, they may be under-resourced and whatnot, but they're fairly innovative. And man, when you introduce a change, you see the results, the impact of that work pretty quickly. And uh, that's that's exciting. And so uh, we're excited you know, to kind of help support uh, the work of the Care Collaborative and, and the rural health systems and providers in uh, services, education, and then, you know, obviously uh, we're an academic medical center, so we have a lot of researchers as there's more and more focus on rural health. Uh, we want to help make sure that it's kind of a pragmatic approach to the research and it, it addresses what uh, the rural providers and systems identify as needs to. And so I'm excited for the future. There's a lot of work to do. Uh, there's a lot of people with a, a great deal of interest and uh, the Care Collaboratives has shown that, uh, you know, with the right model and, and a lot of support from our larger academic institutions, uh, we can do a lot. Absolutely. And I, I really love the um, thing that you mentioned about exposing young physicians and um, people that are, you know, still in school to the specific needs of our rural populations. I think um, a big part of healthcare is that awareness piece and understanding the di different demographics that you might serve in the future. So, um, 
um, I think it's really awesome that that's being woven into the education at this point in time. And and, um, something that I've heard from other physicians as something that they wish was taught more. So, yeah. Well, and I'd be amiss too if I didn't mention that, you know, this center is really a collaboration of uh, all the schools across KUMC, but particularly since it's on the Salina campus, we have both the medical school and a nursing school here. And the nursing school is being very supportive. So, they also want uh, to look at developing those rural track training programs for their uh, rural nurses. Uh, and they certainly, you know, we need those nurses that know how to run down to the ED and take care of a trauma or run back and deliver a baby as well as help with a passage of, at end of life. And so uh, they're harder to come by because it looks overwhelming and, and scary. But I think as they learn uh, early on in their career, it's, it's doable and they can be part of that it'll help us with the pipeline in in growing that. Give them the opportunity to see how they can really make a difference in patients' lives uh, in a rural uh, clinic or a rural hospital, develop a connection with that patient panel and and really support their community in a way that may be difficult to do um, in larger communities. So I think uh, when we talk to our nurses, that seems to be the reason that that they want to stay in rural. Yeah, the community aspect is something that I hear about again and again. I feel like that's the major buzzword um, that is so special um, because if you're dealing with a smaller population, community matters that much more, right? And can be a, a great incentive to stay involved or or to to be working in that environment. Truly, friends and neighbors caring for friends and neighbors in in a rural yeah. community. I think that is really central to um, you know keeping people in rural communities. Absolutely. Well, y'all, this has been awesome. Um, really great interview, and I'm excited for this to come out and for people to listen. I just want to thank you again for taking the time today to sit down and, and share your work, and hopefully we'll have you on the show again in the future with, with more amazing programs that you're working on. So, <laughs> Thank you. This has been Telehealth Unmuted. Be sure to share this episode and subscribe to hear future interviews with leading experts in the field. This podcast was made possible by the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center through grant number U1UTH42530 from the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, Health Resources and Services Administration and Department of Health and Human Services.